is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And for our This Day in History today, and as always, This Day in History is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. Born on This Day in History, the great Larry Bird in 1956. And you can't think or talk about Larry Bird without talking about Magic Johnson. Here are their stories. It is Indiana State against Michigan State. The Bird against Magic. All of the superlatives have been used, and believe me, It all began in Salt Lake City, Utah, on the night of March 26, 1979. It was the NCAA championship, Indiana State versus Michigan State, a game that still ranks as the highest-rated college final ever on television, a game that's now remembered as a prologue to a rivalry that transformed a sport and intertwined two legacies. Here's Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson just before the big game. It would be the first time these two would go head-to-head on a basketball court. This is probably the biggest game I'll ever play in my life, and I just feel like, you know, I'm representing not only myself, my team, but we're representing our school and our our town of Terre Haute. Well, it's uh, a dream come true, really, for me. Uh, I won the state title back in my home state, and then my next accomplishment was going to the NCAA and playing in uh, a game like tonight in the finals. They were two stars made to compete, but only one of them had been groomed for the spotlight. Born August 14, 1959, Irvin Johnson grew up in Lansing, a gritty industrial capital city of Michigan. He was one of Christine and Irvin Johnson Sr.'s 10 kids. Christine was a school custodian, while Irvin Sr. worked two jobs nearly around the clock. Here's Magic Johnson. My father, he got up early every morning, 6 o'clock or so, and uh, he went to work on his trash hauling truck every single day. Around noon, he would come home, catch a nap, and then he worked for General Motors for 30 years. And he won an award for never being late and never uh, missed a day. As a youngster, Irvin displayed his own strong work ethic on the blacktop. Here's Magic and his sister, Evelyn. I was out there all day long. Before we went to school, the bus leave at 7, 7.30. I was out there at 6, 6.30, working on my game. From a very young age, Irvin knew what he wanted to do. He had it all planned out. My dreams were to play in the NBA and become a businessman. Irvin was preparing to go to his neighborhood high school, a basketball powerhouse. They're predominantly black, Sexton High. But when Lansing began busing to desegregated school system, Irvin's journey took an unexpected detour to the predominantly white Everett High School across town. My first day at Everett High School was my first time I really had to understand there was a, a race problem. Nobody white would speak to anybody black, and nobody black would speak to anybody white. A lot of racial tension. A lot of fights, rioting. He kind of shrugged it off, and basically his attitude was, okay, well, I'll, I'll overcome this. Here's Irvin's high school basketball coach, George Fox. Whenever there was any racial problems, the principal would get Irvin and go talk to these kids. I can just see him with his big hands, calm down, just calm down. He'd break up fights. Talk with his friends, tell him, you know, let it go. You know, we can't fight about everything. Let's just chill. Let's play basketball. 
Irvin's talent was so great that soon after his varsity debut, a local reporter, dazzled by his exploits, gave the budding star a nickname. In the beginning, I thought it was foolish and dumb. You know, I didn't know nothing about a nickname. Then what happened was, you start saying, wait a minute, it fits my game. Hanging out with my boys on the street corners, we used to sing Temptation song. They started saying, hey, man, Magic, that's cool. And then people on the street started saying, hey, Magic. And I said, hmm. <laughs> he bought into it, and um, I think he felt he had to kind of live up to that name. And I must say that he did. He loved it. The more attention he got, you know, he just... He wanted attention from anybody he could get it from. Yeah, it does, honestly. I really love the game, and uh, I just want to win. Gets it over and back, and he jams it through. Irvin Johnson. Irvin loved to dress. Nice sandal belt and pants and overcoats with the, the fur around the collar. Always had to have his afro blown out. He had to look the part, play the part. Irvin was the first guy to have a posse. He not only had a posse of a lot of black kids, he had a lot of white kids and hanging around him. Some of my white friends were like, hey man, uh, we're having a kegger tonight, won't you come on by? And I said, what's a kegger? So he said, well, what it is, we get this big keg of beer and you just go for it. Okay, well what time does the, the kegger start? Because regular party time in our neighborhood is 10, 11 o'clock. Uh, the kegger starts at 7. I said, the party starts at 7 o'clock? I said, okay, man, I'm going to come to the kegger. We had a good time. The music was kind of bad, but we had a good time, you know. In his senior year, Magic did at Everett what he had planned to do at Sexton, win the state championship. And when it came to choosing a college, he decided to stay home in Lansing. Next year, I will be a... Uh attending Michigan State University. At MSU, Magic's star quickly went national. But at the top of the college game, he soon discovered a certain presence beside him. The first time I saw Larry Bird was actually in a magazine. Saw his stats. Blown away by his stats. But let's see if he can really do it against us. And that's always a mindset of black players if he's a great white player. In 1978, after his freshman year, the 18-year-old Magic would quickly find out when he and Bird were both chosen to play for Team USA in the World Invitational Tournament. Spectators had never seen their pass-first, shoot-later approach. It was refreshing, and they quickly became crowd favorites. It, it was blowing my mind because he's dominating Jack Givens, player of the year in college basketball. Larry Bird is eating him alive. I couldn't wait to call home to tell my boys, man, this dude named Larry Bird is for real. This is the baddest white dude I've ever seen in my life. And when we come back, more on the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson. Their stories, here on Our American Stories.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with our celebration of Larry Bird's life and the life of Magic Johnson. The two were intertwined. It's a great story about sports, history, race, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. And now, back to the story. Well, I thought he was very good. There's no question about it. I, actually, I thought he was probably the best guard on the team. Irvin Johnson, look at that. Oh! We didn't get to play a lot, but you could tell. I think our first game was in Kentucky. We got about a 10, 12-point lead. Man, they put us in. Went to 25, 30, just that fast. Fast break again. Three on two. Griffin. What? By Larry Bird. Take us out. The league go back down. Put us back in. That's Bird and Johnson. The show started again. When you play with Magic, there's just something about it. You want to make that extra pass. You want to get that rebound and start to break. We came down a couple times. I go behind my back, no look to him. He no look back to me. And I'm laying it up. I'm saying, oh, man. Here's that last play. Magic Johnson going in, drops off the bird. Bird puts it back off inside to Johnson. Super bad. This guy got game. They had some wonderful moments on the court, but the two had no meaningful conversations. Such brevity was hardly strange coming from Larry Bird, who was not only one of college basketball's greatest players, but also its biggest enigma. Larry Bird grew up in southern Indiana in the tough working-class town of French Lick, population 2,000. Tiny and remote, it was one of the poorest places in the state. Arriving Pearl Harbor Day on December 7, 1956, Larry was the fourth of six kids born to Georgia and Joe Bird. Early on, he and his four older brothers earned a reputation around town. Here's older brother Mark and Larry. We were always considered troublemakers. We're either fighting amongst ourselves or there was always one of us fighting somebody. Larry was always one that kind of instigated things, you know. If I get my brother in a fight with somebody his age, I was happy as hell because I like to see him get beat up, and that's just the way it was. If, if I got in a, a scrape with some kid and my brothers didn't come to my side, they knew that when he got home, my dad was going to whip him. Larry and my dad were best of friends. they done everything together. When my dad would go out to my grandma's house, Larry would always go with him. They'd go fishing do a lot of things together. Larry's father battled his whole life against the demons caused by PTSD, which stemmed from a tour of duty in Korea. A talented craftsman, Joe Bird struggled to hold steady jobs. My mom sometimes worked late, and sometimes she had two jobs, but that's the way it was. I worked at school during my lunch hours, worked at the local grocery store, put up hay in the summer. I mean, if you wanted money, you had to get it on your own. To young Larry, actions spoke louder than words. He was very quiet, kind of hung to himself a little bit. I saw Larry take an F in an English class because he had to get up in front of his peers and give a speech. He said, I won't do it. But he just could not get up in front of his friends and talk. He was that shy. Of course... Next thing you know, when he knew it was time for all of us together at the gymnasium, there he'd be. 
the minute he'd get a basketball in his hand, things were totally different. He was good enough for Indiana University's most revered and feared coach, Bobby Knight, to come calling late in his senior year. And since the birds didn't own a car, Larry's uncle tossed Bird's loan bag in the back seat of his Ford and drove 49 miles north to Bloomington to play ball for one of the best college teams in the land. Once I got to IU, it didn't take long to realize that I was out of my cocoon. I had over 30-some thousand students that I didn't have the funds. First week and a half, I thought, man, this ain't gonna work. After 24 days on campus, Bird packed up his duffel bag and hitchhiked back to French Lick. He did not tell anyone of his plans, not even Coach Knight. Letdown reverberated throughout the entire community. Let my mother down. She didn't talk to me for two months. But it didn't matter what other people said. To this day, I don't care. Back in French Lick, Bird went to work for the city. Meanwhile, that winter, his father's demons had taken him to an even darker place. Here's Jackie McMullen, author of the book on bird and magic, When the Game Was Ours. By this point, Joe and Georgia were divorced, and he was behind in his payments to the family. The police came by, and of course, they all knew him. So Joe said, hey, I need a few hours to get my affairs together before you take me away. So he called Georgia, and he said, you guys will be better off without me, and I'm going to take my life. And he put the phone down, and and he killed himself. He shot himself. Here again is Mark Bird and Larry's high school coach, Jim Jones. When Dad passed, you know, it hurt Larry. I mean, that was his best friend. He's gone now. And But Larry didn't show it a lot. He just didn't say much. You know, he just kind of held it within. I've never heard him speak out about it at all. Here's Larry. I was mad when I heard about it, and I was madder after the funeral because I thought he sort of cut out on us during a tough time. But, you know, he went he went through a lot in his life. He did what he had to do. Here again is Jackie McMullen. If Bill Hodges hadn't been as persistent as he had been, Larry Bird might never have existed in any of our minds. I believe that with all my heart. I really do. It was Bill Hodges, the persistent young assistant coach from Indiana State University, who convinced Bird to give college hoops another shot. So, with the promise to his mom to graduate, Bird headed to ISU, a school that never so much had been to the NCAA tournament. This fact did not phase Larry Bird. Once I started playing, it's the same old thing. You know, he's at a small school and he ain't playing against anybody, which is fine. Still dominated. By the time he had led tiny ISU as a senior to a 33-0 record and a spot in the 79 title game, Larry Bird had become, alongside Magic Johnson, the talk of college basketball. The day before playing in the most widely anticipated college title game ever, Magic couldn't wait to greet his old playmate. Here's Magic. Indiana State was on practicing, and we were waiting in the tunnel. We got there early. I wanted to definitely say hello to Larry, you know. When they came through, it was like nobody was saying nothing. I wanted to go toward him, like his guys, like, made sure that he didn't say nothing. And then they kind of started snickering, like, Michigan State, you in trouble. We're going to kill you guys tomorrow. 
I probably did snub him. I don't remember it, but I'm, I'm sure I did. I didn't want any, you know, like I call it love fest, hugging and, and, and slapping high fives with opponent. You're there for a reason. You're there to win a game. That just said it's on now. Heading into the tournament, Magic was the bigger star. But by tip-off, it was Bird, having hardly missed a shot in the semifinal, who had become the focus for the fans and, more importantly, Michigan State. We actually had two men on Larry everywhere he went. Look at the pressure around him. Two, three, and he's short. I didn't play well at all. Biggest game of my life, I didn't play well. toughest loss I ever took. I, I knew it was going to haunt him forever because we were going to see each other a lot. The National Basketball Association in its 33rd season is troubled by diminishing crowds and declining television ratings, signs that fan interest may be waning. College basketball was flourishing at the end of the 1970s, but after the golden era of Bill Russell and Jerry West in the 1960s, the pro game was crumbling. But on a balmy afternoon in June, while Larry Bird was playing golf in Santa Claus, Indiana with his longtime friend, Max Gibson, a stranger hollered to them, Larry Bird, you've just been drafted by the Boston Celtics. What does that mean? Bird asked. Hell, I don't know, he said. Indiana State's season had just ended in heartbreak in Salt Lake City at the hands of Michigan State, and the Celtics made a pitch to sign Bird for the final eight games of their season. The young forward opted instead to teach flag football, baseball, badminton, and dodgeball at the local Indiana high school. His duties also included teaching mentally disabled children, a CPR course, and a driver's education course. It was an unbelievable experience, Bird said. And when we come back, more on this great story. Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, paired forever. Two legends, two men from such different walks of life. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories, and we last heard that Larry Bird passed on the Boston Celtics' offer to bypass his senior year and instead spend the summer playing and serving in his town. Let's find out what else Larry Bird did that summer going into his senior year at Indiana State University. One evening that summer, Bird was playing baseball and positioned in left field when a hard-rolling ball smashed his finger and bent it backward. I looked down, Bird said, and my finger was all the way over on the other side of my hand. Bird had to have surgery. How long is it going to take before it's healed? Bird asked the surgeon. Son, I'm not sure it will. He was right. Today, Bird concedes. I never could shoot as well again. Bird finished his senior year at Indiana State 
And then in the spring of 1979, the NBA's sixth selected draft pick arrived with great hopes for the city of Boston. Here's Walter Cronkite. There's hope he can help solve professional basketball's difficulties, which some say are compounded by a question of black and white. The great white hope. What does that mean? Well, you know, it's very hard to say because there's a lot of great white players around, and I just hope that I can just fit in as well as some of them that has fit in. You know, the, the great players are the black players, and they're the best. Such regard meant little to black Celtics. Guys like Cedric Maxwell, who looked at Bird and saw not the great white hope, but another case of great white hype. I think that you would say that most black players at the time were racist in, in the sense that we did not think that you could find a, a white guy who could play better than any black guy. When I walk in the first day of camp, them guys were on the floor stretching, and here comes the white savior, here comes this, here comes that. I sort of enjoyed it because I knew I was going to battle them all day. But Curtis and Sidney didn't last long. They didn't make it through the first practice, and they were cut. So then it was just Cedric. I'm thinking, oh, he's slow. He can't get off a shot. He's not that strong. This is going to be a layup. Bam. Knocks down a jump shot. Okay. Maybe that was luck. Gets the ball again. Bam. Knocks down another jump shot. Now I'm thinking like, okay, hey, you know what? I'm going to D this guy up. I'm going to show him what it's like. 20 feet away. Bam. 25 feet away. Bam. I, my mind just goes to the Damn, this white guy can play. It was a good thing, too. The storied Celtics might have been the winningest team in NBA history, but they were fresh off their worst season in 30 years. And in Bird, they not only had a player who was supremely talented, but tough enough to take on any challenge. Larry Bird plays it to the hilt, baby. Talent, toughness, and confidence aside, Boston also liked winners. And when Bird led the Celtics to the NBA championship in just his second season, he was finally one of those two. And Larry Bird is right in the middle. He's the eye of the hurricane, known as the Boston Celtics. Boston loved Larry Bird. It just wasn't so clear at first how much Bird loved the city back. Here's Bird speaking at the city parade celebrating their NBA championship. There's only one place I'd rather be, French Lick. Thank you. He proudly dubbed himself the Hick from French Lick. And he looked every bit the part. But those who played him for simple did so at their own peril. One of the great ways, I think, of winding up with no money in your pocket is to think Larry Bird is dumb. Syntax is not intelligence. Unlettered is not stupid. He did, however, allow the public one small indulgence. You could come out on Saturday and watch him mow his lawn. Huge crowds started to stop. Larry Bird's cutting grass in front of his... He's mowing his lawn in the springtime. Larry is about doing things himself. And I think it's one of the things that made him so beloved in Boston. But as Bird navigated through his new world, he still had one eye fixed on a familiar foe in a faraway land. It is now exactly 12 noon. The draft is officially open. The first pick, the Los Angeles Lakers select... Urban Magic Johnson, Michigan State, 6'8", 200 pounds. In the stoic Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, the Lakers had talent, but what they were lacking in 
was energy. Irvin Magic Johnson was only too happy to provide it. Here's Brian Gumble. Lit the place up. Changed the franchise, changed the temperament. I changed it from the very first game. Here it was, the first game of a long season against the lowly Clippers. And Magic was embracing Kareem as if they'd just won their 10th straight championship. It was like, man, this is a different kind of dude. Here's Magic's close friend, Arsenio Hall. From the day he arrived, he became the prince of the city. He reminded me of a guy who wakes up without an alarm clock, and that's what I used to always say. I want to be happy enough to wake up without an alarm clock because I want to go into my world. Here's former Lakers head coach Pat Riley. He had it, what it is. As far as I was concerned, the it was not his ability or his size. The it was his attitude, was his leadership, was his mind. In his rookie season, Magic led the Lakers to the 1980 NBA championship. But what Bird couldn't possibly have known was that he had inspired Magic's performance when he was named Rookie of the Year that same day. Here again is Jackie McMullen. The PR person from the Lakers says, hey, Irvin, the Rookie of the Year voting has come out. And Magic says, okay, well, who won? He said, well, Larry Bird won. And Magic says, well, was it close? And he said, oh, no. Bird won the award by a 63-3 margin. Magic received the remaining three votes. Bird won the title the next year, and soon after that, black kids began showing up at the playground wearing Bird's number 33 jersey. Magic was surprised the first time he saw it, especially because it was on the blacktop in Los Angeles. Bird also had a close eye on Magic. I'd get up in the mornings and see what he did because their games came on late. Then you look at the box score. I had to have him there for some reason. It's like a crutch, somebody I can compare myself to. I hated what was being said that Larry was better than me and I'm just a guy who can control the game. My first four or five years, that bothered me a lot. I didn't tell nobody it bothered me, but it did. Their competitive dislike emerged from a greater truth that on the court, they were two of a kind. Basketball prodigies who fused the substance of the 60s with the style of the 70s to create a new and exciting, yet selfless way to play the game in the 1980s. But with continued low television ratings and tape-delayed finals, the NBA was struggling to get the word out. After the NBA signed a new TV deal with CBS before the 82-83 season, the rescue plan was simple. Sell more Magic and Bird. Here again is McMullen and Ted Shaker, former executive for CBS Sports. You got this slick Showtime African-American guy out west, and you got the lunch bucket, floppy-haired white guy with the bruises all over his body. It's central casting. It's perfect. I mean, this was like made in heaven. In 1979, this idea of Magic and Bird was created, and so that was sort of a no-brainer. We'd have a doubleheader. It would be the Celtics playing first and the Lakers playing second, and that's the way we did it. In 1984, when the Celtics and the Lakers both reached the finals just a year into the TV deal, the superstar investment was about to pay off. It came down to Game 7. It was like college in 1979 for Magic and Bird. 
Magic and the Lakers flew into Boston for game seven. The plane pull in, like the whole airport just stopped and turned and just stared at us and guys running up. Magic, Larry's gonna kill you. Larry's gonna kill you. And so just looking and everybody, yeah, Bird's gonna kill you, Magic. When we come back, the final installment of this terrific hour-long story, Larry Bird, Magic Johnson, forever paired together. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. our American stories and we return to the story of Larry Bird and Magic Johnson and as always our this day in histories are brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific and free online courses go to hillsdale.edu there are 16 or 17 of them up right now and you can get a real college education without even going and now let's return to the final installment of Larry and Magic's story. Game 7 of the 84 series was the highest rated game the NBA had ever produced. But Magic was not rejoicing. The Boston Celtics are the NBA world champions. Well, it was a big deal. I remember asking Quinn Buckner about it afterwards. They had a celebration in downtown Boston after they won the championship. And, you know, it was unusual for Larry to have these little outbursts, as Quinn would call them. But, you know, about 1130 at night, finally he turned to Quinn. He goes, I got him. I finally got him. And he was talking about magic. The two teams met again in the NBA Finals the following season. But in the 1985 Finals... Magic flipped the script, winning the clinching game at the Boston Garden. But the significance of their rivalry and their relationship was about to change. Converse had convinced Magic and Bird to shoot a sneaker commercial in the summer of 1985. You crazy. (laughs) I said, you crazy. I'm not shooting a commercial with Larry. So I said, okay, what, we're going to shoot in L.A.? I would never went to L.A. to film it. Well, where are we going to shoot it? If you want to shoot a commercial, come to my house. I was like, oh, no. One stoplight. I thought Lansing was small. I think the plan was, I'm going to go here, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do, and I'm trying to get up out of here. My plan was that. The ad was to be shot at the home Bird built for his mom just outside French Lick, Indiana. It featured a full-length basketball court, the day's first shooting location. So they say, okay, you're playing one-on-one, and I'm looking at Larry, and he's looking at me like, is this real? Are we playing, playing? Because, you know, this is is magic and Bird. I could just hear Larry, you know, starting in on 
well, you bring it to the basket, and I'm going to send it 30 rows up. So the guy was like, no, no, not like that. A fun game. We were both like, oh, okay. Like, <laughs> like you can see this relief coming over both of our faces. We sat down next to each other. How was your summer? Oh, it's going good. How was yours? It's going great. I said, man, it's a nice spread you got. He's asked me, is this where you play? I said, yeah, I play here. If it's not windy, if it's raining or windy, I go to the gym. But this is where I do all my work. I see that tractor. You work on the, on the tractor? He said, man, I work on this tractor every day. Larry Bird work on the tractor? He said, yeah. It's just them two walking and talking. And every once in a while, they'd stop, and one of them would say something, and then they'd start laughing. Then they said, OK, break. It's lunch break time. I was going to my trailer. He said, no. My mother has prepared lunch for us up at the house. We went up to the house and we sat down there and we talked. And my mom, my brothers thought the world of him. His mother was so nice, making sure I had enough to eat. I just saw my mother. It was crazy. He charmed her. You can see it. But that's magic. He makes everybody feel welcome and warm. And he's a con man. <laughs> By the dawn of the 90s, Magic won five titles, played in eight finals, and equaled Bird's MVP tally of three. The Prince of L.A. was now the king, and in Hollywood, being royalty has its perks. For Magic, his favorite perk was women. But things were not the same back in Boston. Larry Bird was taking care of a nasty back injury that occurred in 1985 while single-handedly building his mother's driveway back in French Lick. But after two ruptured Achilles tendons and surgery on his back in 1991, Bird kept going to work. You know, I probably should have retired in 88, 89, but it's that competition. Maybe one more chance, man, Magic get together in the finals, but it never happened. And then Magic received a phone call. I'm sleeping, really, laying down, just waiting on the game, and... uh... The phone rings, and uh, the voice says, hey, you got to come back to L.A. And uh, I said, okay, why? Well, I can't tell you until you get to L.A. So I said, okay. Dr. Mailman, he starts to tell me that, you know, uh, through the physical that I took, that um, they discovered that I had HIV. Oh, it was everything. How is it possible? What happened? How did it happen to me? And my mind is racing, you know, and, uh, and then you just, you're just devastated. The first person I thought of was Larry. I wonder what Larry thinks. The day that I heard about magic, it just sort of changed my love for basketball. It shook me up. You know, you get get that feeling, probably the same type of feeling I had when my father died. Calls me and uh, we're talking. You know, it's just, how you doing? I heard about it and uh, 
you can almost hear both of us with some uh, tears in our eyes. And I'm choked up because he did call me. And, uh, you know, when something happens, you and then you find out who really your friends are and people who really care about you um, you figure all those battles all those things we had to go through as warriors as competitors than as men. And um, here this man says, hey, you know what, man, you're okay. And so um, that was the greatest moment for me, too, you know, to have him check on me and, and to make sure I was okay. Magic retired immediately and Bird's 91-92 season was his last in the NBA. To his delight, Magic was invited to play in the 1992 NBA All-Star Game. He stole the show and won MVP honors, but that was just a warm-up for the encore Magic had up his sleeve. Here's Larry Bird. He's not done yet because we're going to go to Barcelona and bring back the gold for everyone here in the United States. For the first time ever, NBA players would be competing in the Olympics on the first dream team with the likes of Michael Jordan and Charles Barkley. The irony was that Magic felt incredible, but Bird, with his bad back, could hardly move. But you know what? Didn't matter. We were still together. You know, didn't matter. Hold me close and hold me fast. And when he got his opportunity... He switched a few. When I got my opportunity, I still was magic. Today, decades removed from the height of their rivalry, their bond endures. Two impossibly different men with a connection only they can fully grasp. But I always, I always get this good feeling when I know I'm going to see him because uh, he makes you feel good. You know, he really does. <laughs> he's unbelievable. He's very private, but if he's your friend, man, you got a friend for life. And Larry Bird is a straight shooter. He'll tell you when he don't like you. That's one thing I wish I could have from him, that, that he has that I don't have. I wish I had that. I mean, he walked in here, this whole room would change, and uh, maybe that's what I always wanted to be, but I just couldn't. And great job as always, Greg, and that's Greg Hengler doing the voicing and the writing on a piece that we love bringing you stories like this because you're not going to get them anywhere else. An unlikely friendship, likely competitors, these things happen, but a unique set of talents, unique men... And a love story, if ever there was one. A love story between Larry Bird and Irvin Magic Johnson, here on Our American Stories. ¶¶ 
December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu. The Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. This is Our American Stories on this day in history just before 8 a.m. Hundreds of Japanese fighter planes attacked the American naval base at Pearl Harbor near Honolulu, Hawaii. Hawaii was not yet a state. The barrage lasted just two hours, but it was devastating. The Japanese managed to destroy nearly 20 American naval vessels, including eight enormous battleships and more than 300 airplanes. More than 2,000 American soldiers and sailors died in the attack. Another 1,000 were wounded. We all know that famous speech given by President Roosevelt following the attacks. It's an important part of our history. Indeed, some historians have said this is when America became a grown-up nation and went from being isolationist to a global superpower. Just as important, though, besides the geopolitical stories, are the stories of the brave men who were on the ground and in the water that day. We don't hear those stories enough. Stories from a generation of men whose voices will only live on when we take the time to listen to them. And so many of them, by the way, are dying off. And that's exactly what we're doing today for the hour. We'll also listen to more of Roosevelt's remarkable speech. By the way, on that day that he delivered the speech, he leaned on his son and then leaned on a cane. And as you all may or may not know, he suffered from polio. But on this night, he wanted to walk up to the joint session of Congress and show them he could walk. And he did. And so we'll get to that speech later, too, because what a speech it was and what a moment, a rallying cry for the American people. But first up, we want to talk about John Anderson, who enlisted in the Navy on March 16, 1937. From Minneapolis, Minnesota, he reported on board the USS Arizona December 6, 1940, just one year before the attack on Pearl Harbor. Here he describes his day of December 7, 1941. He was a mere 24 years old. 
and was stationed along with his twin brother, Jake. When I awoke on the morning of December 7th, I had the duty in the 4th Division. And the division was uh, clean up any uh, activity we had going and to arrange the uh, uh, ceremonies for our church on the fantail of the ship. So I took my uh, working party and we commenced to do all this sort of thing. And we were a little late getting into the uh, mess hall for breakfast. So we got this straightened out and uh, we went inside to eat. And about the time I got inside to get a chance to eat something, I heard a loud explosion. And I thought, what the dickens is that? And then one of the mess cooks looked out the porthole and saw the explosion and called me. And he said, Andy, you were in China just recently. Well, yes. Well, you know what it was? Did you see that? And I said, no. He said, get out and take a look. So I went outside the hatch onto the main quarter deck, looked up and saw this plane with dipping like this. And it had red balls on its wings. And I said, that, I did said a cuss word, and I said, the Japanese are here. We already knew this was going to happen sometime, but they're here. Here's what happened next to Mr. Anderson as bombs were beginning to drop all around him. And so I ran back toward the hatch door to pull the general alarm. And about the time I got the it, which I never did, a bomb dropped between us and the vestal. And it blew me inside the hatch, knocked me silly. And I, uh, <clears throat> of course, you know, that set off the wildfire. And of course, the Japanese were then machine gunning the decks, like spraying the decks with machine gun fire. Then uh, more bombs began to drop around us. And of course, we immediately did what we were supposed to do go to our general quarter station. So I got up off the deck went down to the lower hatches and back up into the barbette of number four turret because I was a gunner on my battle station in number four turret. And I got into the seat and said, manned and ready. In the meantime, I told, I told the turret captain, uh, uh, Campbell, I said, look, what I saw out there was a number of Japanese planes. I didn't see any ships or anything and no shell fire. There's all bombs and machine gun fire. And he said, well, what do you suggest? And I said, well, we can't do any good in here. We need some gunners on the aircraft batteries. And if those guys are dead, who's going to defend us with, from those planes up there? And he says, well, what do you want to do? And I said, I'd like to get out there and get on a gun with my brother. He's an anti-aircraft gun captain, and he needs help. And he said, go for it. So I said, okay. Go for it. Not waiting for the order. Stepping up. John Anderson, his life. We'll continue with his story of one of the most tragic days in American history, Pearl Harbor. More after these messages.
This is our American stories. Pearl Harbor. We wanted to take you there through men who were there. John Anderson on the USS Arizona. And we leave off with him in the last segment saying, let's, let's do it. Let's go. Or as our hero on Flight 93 said, let's roll. That's the American spirit. Anderson sprang into action before things took a turn for the worse. So I talked to a couple other guys that was in there with me, Hog Otterman and Dwayne Barth and full of name Lewis, several other guys. I said, I'm going out the trap door and I'm going up there and get on the guns. If you guys want to stay here, you can do that and man this turret. If, we, if they start shelling us, I'll come back. So you, I won't be gone that long. So I got out of the turret, went out from the under, overhang of the turret, and started up the ladder to the boat deck where all the anti-aircraft guns were. Well, I got to the top of the ladder, and the enormous explosion occurred, and people were just blown all over the place. There was all kinds of body parts, different... Uh, no, there was nothing I could do to do it for anything, and a tremendous fire broke out. And then explosions of our artillery that was, uh, that was up with the, the, our uh, uh, ammunition started blowing. And it knocked me back about back to as far as number four turret. And on the way back, I grabbed a guy by the hand who was on fire, and I held on to him. And he was from Greenfield, Ohio. I never forgot that. And I, I saved him. I got him out of there. But he was on fire. I got the fire out. And then, of course, there's nothing I could do because everybody was trying to salvage somebody or get them off where they were free and clear. But nobody was free and clear. And some small craft were around us, but they didn't venture too close. But one of them did. And uh, Admiral Fuqua, who was the senior surviving officer there on board, was yelling at me to get in one of those boats and when I was dumping guys, wounded people that I could find, uh, who were still in one piece, into the boat to take them ashore to the bunker over there on Fort Island. And uh, so he yelling at me to get off. And I said, Mike, I'm not leaving. My brother's there someplace. i got to find him. i got to find him. And he says, he can't make it. He couldn't have made it. You just get in there. He said, this place is going to blow. That magazine under you was almost hit by one. And he said, it's not able to go. He says, get out of here, but I wouldn't go. Not wanting to leave his twin brother Jake or the other men behind, John Anderson was ordered to evacuate the area just after a bomb hit his ship. In the meantime, one of the bombs hit the turret that we had been in, (laughs) and it skidded off the faceplate, which is about 16-inch steel, the faceplate, and went down below and exploded below and killed members of the CIC, Combat Information Center, but we weren't there at the time. We were looking for a different spot on the ship there. And uh, so finally uh, I got over there to the uh, uh, starboard uh, quarter, which is the right-hand quarter of the ship, where that small boat had got in. And a fellow named uh, Alexander was a pilot of this small craft, which I didn't think I'd ever forget, and I didn't this time. And Alexander said, come on, give me the guy, give me the guy. As he did, and I said, no. He said, I, he said, you got any more? And he said, yes. He said, well, get him in here, let's get him on. In the meantime, Dr. Admiral Fuquay, who was the lieutenant commander at that time, came over to me and said, you got to get in the boat. We want to save as many men as we can. Get in there. 
I said, well, I'm not going. He says, yes, you are. And he shoved me in with a loaded ma- uh, wounded man in my hands. So I got in the boat, whether one, two or not, and they took off for Ford Island. I got to Ford Island. We unloaded the dead and uh, wounded on uh, some flatbed trucks that came down there to get them. And then uh, I stood outside the bunker and I looked out there at the Arizona and I said, it's still on fire, but maybe we can get back and do something. And a small craft floating by itself, nobody in it. And I turned around and saw this kid standing next to me and I said, uh, Rose, are you ready to drive out back out there and go at it again? He says, if you are, I am. Anderson and Rose then made their way back to the Arizona. Here again is John Anderson with the heroism and ultimate tragedy that would next unfold. So we swam out, got in that boat, which was just adrift of the Arizona stern, and drove back up alongside the port quarter of the Arizona. That's the left side. And I climbed aboard, and he held us alongside, and we did rescue three guys. Uh, I, you know, they were alive. We had so many dead ones that I couldn't tell. In the time that I had, I couldn't have... And other guys were trying to do the same thing, but they must have gone by the time we got back. And uh, I, I had to take what we could get. So we took these three guys and uh, tried to make sure they were okay, and we drove on down. I was a pilot of this uh, uh, small craft, drove on down, down past the Oklahoma and the West Virginia, and we got down to the seaplane ramp, and a shell or something hit our boat. And uh, it could have been an explosive uh, machine gun fire, explosive, explosive bullets. Anyway, it blew our boat apart and lost those three guys and rose. And I was the only one who lived alive in that. The four men he was with, they were all dead. Mr. Anderson then swam back to the beach where he found something interesting. So I managed to make it ashore and just fell down on the ground there on the beach. And then Japanese were still running back and forth. A new, new batch of them from up there came in. It's like second wave, I think. But anyway, they peppered the beach with machine gun fire. And, of course, I had to get off the beach before I got hit myself again. And uh, I ran up to the runway, which is on Fort Island, not too far from the beach. And there was a tree and several trees there. And one of them had... A uh, 193 Springfield rifle and two bandoliers of ammunition hanging over the limb there. I said, my God, this is my serious, this is worth saving me. I've got myself a rifle and two bandoliers of ammunition, and that's about 215 rounds, and I'm going to be able to do some good. <laughs> I took off down the runway and found a bomb hole in the runway and parked there. And uh, got in there and of course, for some reason or other, they didn't come back and bomb us again. They were down there blowing up the planes a little further away from us. Anyway, this other fellow came on. He was in Marine uniform, dress uniform. And he looked at me and he said, Hey, Andy, what are you doing there? And I said, Well, I'm, that's where I'm going to make my stand. He says, Well, I've got a machine gun. We can give him hell. Anderson and that Marine would hunker down for the night before they moved out the following morning. Anderson didn't learn what happened to his twin brother, for some time. I didn't know what happened to my brother. I was out in the Pacific and found out that there was a, a gunner that was on the boat deck 
who had charge of all those guns up there, and my brother was under his command. And he said that he saw, he had he put out a, a brief that he saw Anderson knocked down by gunfire. He was the gun captain on a gun. And then when the explosion occurred, he, the gunner got blown overboard. So he didn't know what happened other than most people up there were burned to death or blown to pieces. So uh, I, they never did find my brother's body. But the, the last well, I know about is what this gunner had to say later. And the gunner, of course, was killed after he'd done this uh, against the uh, kamikazes off the, off the sea of Okinawa when the kamikazes were coming in on the Pacific Fleet units. A gunner was out there and was killed there. So that was the last I ever, anybody ever had on my boiler. John Anderson passed away in November of 2015 in Roswell, New Mexico, at the age of 98. After his remains were cremated, a Navy SEAL took the ashes underwater and placed them next to his brother Jake's final resting spot at the sunken USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. Of the 1,512 men on board that ship, 1177 died there were 38 sets of brothers 23 of them died one father and son died if you ever get a chance visit that sunken battleship if you ever get a chance visit a battleship the immensity of them the Arizona was 608 feet long And again, 1177 died on this day in history in 1941. More on Pearl Harbor. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and on this day in history Pearl Harbor was attacked by the Japanese 2403 American Navy men and women were killed one of the worst days in American history and we're telling the stories through two survivors and up next Glenn Lane's story. He was an airman on the deck-launched seaplane aboard the USS Arizona. Here's his account of flying into Pearl Harbor on December 5th. We were coming in on Friday, December 5th. The other fifth, the other force ain't coming out, so we're flying in. Of course, uh, we always flew in when they, when they uh, 
catapult, and then we'd fly in and uh, either land at Port Island or somewhere when the ship was in the harbor. Anyway, the other force wasn't coming out. And I asked the senior airman, I said, hey, what's the matter with the other battle force? They're not coming out. He says, well, they've decided to leave them all in the harbor and send out the, the, the faster cruiser scouting force. And I said, well, why? He said, well, if we go to war, which he says things are kind of touch and go, they figure the only thing that'll happen here is have some hit and run raids at night by shelling from submarines, and they can't hurt the wagons inside. But out here, uh, we're not fast enough to outrun them. So that's, that's the, the thinking of putting them inside. Well, satisfied me. We put our airplanes over on Fort Island. We beached them over there and uh, and then went back aboard the ship. To, and we would have been coming over to operate Fort Island the next week. But uh, we, there was no next week as far as, as, far as uh, the Arizona went. There was no next week. Here's Glenn Lane describing what was going on leading up to the attack on Pearl Harbor when they started to hear explosions. We were parked where the, where the memorial is right now. And uh, everything was pretty normal except the uh, vessel of repair ship was alongside of us because we needed some work on our evaporators and some other stuff. And we were to let our fires die down and take our power from the vessel and uh, start Monday morning. We were supposed to be working on the ship. And then we went on Liberty Saturday. And, uh, well, the next day... We got hit. It was right after breakfast, uh, just four, eight o'clock, and I'd bought some Christmas cards the day before, and we were going to, several of us, and we were going to go down into one of our storerooms, way down at the bottom of the ship, where nobody bothers, we were going to write Christmas cards and send Christmas cards and get them ready to send. And uh, I got to go get a bath first, so I went to the lock, put a bath towel around my neck, and had my toilet gear in my hand, going to get a bath. And then I still heard these explosions on, what's going on? Oh, they're, they're blasting on Fort Island, somebody said. I said, uh-uh, that, they don't, they were building a lot of construction over there, but they don't work on Sundays. I said, somebody probably, well, there's a lot of bombs laying around on the hangar deck over there on depth charges and stuff because they were putting depth charges on those PBYs. They were a possible chance to go out and, and attack those subs. And I said, they, they had these depth charges that looked like the old ash cans off a of, off a destroyer, but they had them fixed so they could hook them on the on the uh, PBYs. I said, uh, some idiot probably kicked one of them fuses over there and blew a hanger up, just so they didn't get our airplane. See, Glenn and the other airmen went to see what was going on, not realizing yet that it was an attack. So we went up topside, which was one deck up the forecastle, and over Fort Island, big fires. And lots of smoke, and uh, and you see an airplane or two flying around up there. And we still didn't ring a bell because uh, we see airplanes flying all the time. But uh, then we turned around, and looked up the harbor, and here comes. We saw a couple of airplanes, and one of them. I said, "Oh, the army's out earlier today, on Sunday." And then I saw that torpedo plane carrying a torpedo. And I said, hey, two guys with me, see. And the Army ain't got no torpedo planes. That, tor- that plane's got a fish under it. And just then they dropped the torpedo, 
and I think it hit the Oklahoma, uh, two ships ahead of us. But then they swung over and they come back over the Arizona, past the West Virginia, and they're strafing. So you could see the old guns winking at you. I get down, so we got down and they missed us by about three feet uh, across the teakwood deck with four or five shots. Next, Glen Lane would defy a direct order by heading to a battle station, a move that would ultimately save his life. Here's Glenn with what he saw when the Arizona was hit. I said to them two guys ahead of me, I said, hey, come on back up here. We got a, we got a battle station on the, on the quarter deck. It was general quarters. So I turned around and come back up. There was a Marine lieutenant down there, and he says, at the top of that ladder, he says, get back down there. I said, I'm going to my battle station. And he said, get back down there. There won't be any panic on this ship. I said, I'm not panicking. I'm going to my battle station. Well, I just went to my battle station, and, well, I guess I moved him out of the way. But the other two guys were in front of me uh, going down the ladder. They didn't get back up, so they're still out there. The bomb had hit the face of number four turret and glanced off and went down through the quarterdeck, uh, and fire was down uh, the deck below, but it looked like a blowtorch coming out of the coming out of the, of the, of the hole where the bomb went in. We were out there trying to get that, that fire going, uh, fire apparatus going, yelling at the guy, get us some pressure. And he said, I'm on the phone trying to get him. Nobody answers. So, well, we got just a few drops coming out of that stupid hose. And then we got hit four or five more times. I don't know. Every time we get hit, it seemed like it would knock us down. And then we get back up again and start operating again. And then we get hit again. And I'd say four or five times we got hit because I was on my hands and knees several times. And we got that big bomb down that uh, blew the forward magazines. And when the forward magazines blew, uh, you could feel the ship just raise out of the water like that, see, just like a bucking bronco. And and then that big fireball come rolling back, and I dropped my, my nozzle. And I remember this. Well, I still had my towel wrapped around my neck, see, because I didn't want to lose my towel. I put a knot in it. I had a big old bath towel around my neck. And I, and I didn't have a hat on. I ducked my head in my arms. I turned my back real as quick as I could, and, and that concussion of the, and fireball hit just like Syria. I didn't feel anything until I was in the water and I mean I was down in the water deep and I fought to get to the surface and uh, I saw that I could still see and I looked I looked back at the ship. I'm out there in the water maybe 20-30 feet off the ship I looked back up on it and I couldn't see a living person on the ship not one of course, you didn't have very good perspective because the ship's up here and you're down here, so I couldn't see anybody. I said, I'm not going back aboard because there's no use. We're listening to Glenn Lane. He's recounting his experience in Hawaii on December 7, 1941, and that's what we like to do here in Our American Stories. Bring you the stories from the people, get out of the way, and you just get to hear their voices directly. We heard from Mr. Anderson before. He had passed away. And his ashes were laid to rest next to his brother Jake at the memorial that is now the USS Arizona in Pearl Harbor. And when we come back, we'll finish the rest of Glenn Lane's story. And Glenn, Glenn Lane, too, passed away back in 2011 but his story his voice 
You still hear it. And we're going to keep playing this every year, forever. Here on Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, our final segment celebrating or honoring and commemorating Pearl Harbor, December 7, 1941. Glenn Lane's story, we pick up where he left off. Glenn then swam to safety and climbed aboard a fishing boat. And here he talks about what he did next to help the wounded before he was asked, before he was asked, to help fight fires. So I went out and started helping get wounded guys on the, on the life rafts and to get them headed over to the hospital over there toward the Navy hospital, the Navy yard. And it got done there, and then they asked, they passed the word for, they need some men back aft to fight fires. So went back there, and the way we fought fires, throw a mattress in the water, soak it, and then, then throw it up to you, and you put it on your back, and you go up the ladder, and you go up there on a boat deck where the, where the fires were, you throw that mattress down there and stomp on it and then run back and get another another mattress. Well, about two trips up through that, that two ladders up to the boat deck, I'm worn out because I've, I've had it, see, and i carrying them stupid heavy mattresses and, uh, well, I stepped over guys that were laying there, their arms were blown off and their heads were blown off and everything else, but uh, it, it I was in such a state that it didn't seem to bother me. Uh, and then I was so tired that I just, I had to get out of the way because I, I was too weak to carry mattress up topside anymore. So I, and I tell you, I was a pretty, pretty sturdy young man, but uh, it's been quite a day. Glenn was tired and didn't realize that he was bleeding until someone checked on him while he was sleeping. I went in a blacksmith shop that was down there by the number three turret someplace. And I went over in a corner and I laid down. I was just, and all I wanted to do is sleep. I, I was just worn out completely. And if you ever really had fatigue, you know what I'm talking about. But, and I, I, I went to sleep, and then a couple guys are shaking me, and I see their corpsman. And they said, are you all right? And I said, I'm okay, just leave me alone, let me sleep, I'm okay. One guy says, he's hurt, he's bleeding. And he says, how come you're all oil, all oil soaked? I said, I'm off to Arizona. He said, good God, he says, we better we better get you to sick bear. So they started moving, and boy, I hurt. I hurt bad when they started moving. I yelled at them, leave me alone. You're hurt. Have you had morphine? No. So they gave me a serrata morphine, and they're like putting a nice warm bath over you, see. And I didn't hurt anymore. And then they, they said, well, we we got no place in sick bay. So, so they put me on a motor launch, and I headed for, they hauled me to the Solus, the hospital ship. I'll go down all along the battleships. Here's the California sinking. Here's the 
the Oklahoma capsized. Here's the West Virginia burning and sinking, sunk. And behind her, the Arizona is in a shambles. Oh, I said, good God, there's our battle fleet. I can't imagine. You just can't imagine. Now on board a hospital ship, Glenn Lane first thought he had been captured by Japanese before he realized that he was lucky compared to the dying soldiers that he was next to. It must have been hours later because I was laying there half asleep, asleep probably. Somebody woke me up and, here, drink this. And he stuffed a uh, tube thing in my mouth to have some soup, see. And I looked at the guy and he's oriental. And I thought, oh, God, they've captured us, see. And I get the hell away from me. I knock the thing out of his hands. Get away from me, you so-and-so Jap. I don't know part of you trying to poison me or something, you know. And I look at some corner and say, hey, hey, you know, he's one of ours. He's one of our orderlies. He's, he's okay. He's okay. So he's okay, see. So they brought me another field. And I was but awful hungry. But I sucked that soup completely down through busted lips and uh, blistered lips. And, but I drank all the soup they had anyway. I spent quite a number of days on a hospital ship. Of course, I didn't feel too bad because I see guys in the bunks next to me that were, were dying, and I wasn't dying. Glenn Lane retired in Oak Harbor, Washington, as a Master Chief Petty Officer after 30 years in the Navy. He suffered shrapnel wounds and burns, but didn't receive a Purple Heart until 2004. He passed away on December 10, 2011, just over seven decades after the attack. And now we want to bring you in its entirety the President of the United States addressed to the nation the very next day. Roosevelt wrote this himself. Others had had additions, wanted to put more language, more words. He said no. This one needed to be short, He needed to walk to the podium, which he did, and it was hard for him. He leaned on his son, as I said earlier, and on his cane on the other side, and then delivered this speech to a grieving nation. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, the United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. The United States was at peace with that nation and at solicitation of Japan, still in conversation with its government and its emperor, looking toward the maintenance of peace in the Pacific. Indeed, one hour after Japanese air squadrons had commenced bombing in the American island of Oahu, the Japanese ambassador to the United States and his colleague delivered to our Secretary of State a formal reply to a recent American message. And while this reply stated that it seemed useless to continue the existing diplomatic negotiations, 
It contained no threat or hint of war or of armed attack. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. During the intervening time, the Japanese government has deliberately sought to deceive the United States by false statements and expressions of hope for continued peace. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. I regret to tell you that very many American lives have been lost. In addition, American ships have been reported torpedoed on the high seas between San Francisco and Honolulu. Yesterday, the Japanese government also launched an attack against Malaya. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Hong Kong. Last night, Japanese forces attacked Guam. Last night, Japanese forces attacked the Philippine Islands. Last night, the Japanese attacked Wake Island. And this morning, the Japanese attacked Midway Island. Japan has therefore undertaken a surprise offensive extending throughout the Pacific area. The facts of yesterday and today speak for themselves. The people of the United States have already formed their opinions and well understand the implications to the very life and safety of our nation. As Commander-in-Chief of the Army and Navy, I have directed that all measures be taken for our defense, but always will our whole nation remember the character of the onslaught against us. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. Five hundred and twenty-one words. Perfect words. Gettysburg, two hundred and sixty-six. The best American speeches, the shortest. By the way, there was one edit he made towards the end. Originally, he had written a date that will live in history, and he changed it to a date that will live in infamy. And what a difference a word can make. What a difference words can make. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We celebrate Pearl Harbor through the lives of two survivors who are no longer with us, but their words 
their heroism always remain with us. <laughs>